Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Robert Signer. Rob. So Rob has uh, had an illustrious time here in terms of really being able to garner a lot of grants and major awards, but most importantly, make some of the most seminal discoveries in the hematopoietic stem cell field that are predicated on understanding how our stem cells turn over their protein. How do we protect our normal blood stem cells from being stressed out, but it's uh, basically to protect uh, protein turnover rates. So Rob trained originally in Canada at the University of Toronto in engineering, went to UCLA, uh, did a PhD, actually worked on the microenvironment, the stroma that supports stem cells long before a lot of other people were even thinking about it, and then went and did a postdoctoral fellowship uh, working with one of the most famous stem cell biologists, uh, Sean Morrison, and there he had a very nice nature paper showing that hematopoietic stem cells need to regulate their protein turnover rates. Since Rob was uh, recruited here, he's been able to garner the most grants in the shortest period of time I've ever seen, and the most awards in the shortest period of time I have ever seen, which is astonishing. Most importantly, Rob just got tenure, so congratulations, Rob. Yay! Uh, So we'll have a celebration. That's a big deal, again, in a short period of time. So I think, you know, we've got two rock stars of science here. They're going to tell us how we prevent aging, which I'm in denial about, but uh, I think I can't do that anymore. So I think for all of us, this is going to be a very interesting talk. Uh, Rob is going to tell us about the new advances he's published in high-impact journals on how to keep our stem cells fit, and uh, is now an associate professor, as of, I think, yesterday, in the Division of Regenerative Medicine. So congratulations again, Rob, and thank you for being here. As the title says, we're here today to take a closer look at aging. And so, you know, I thought I'd start off with with a little bit of a personal story that's going to get me into uh, a little bit of a disclaimer before I start. So I've got two young kids at home and anyone who's been around young kids know that there's nothing young kids want more than to age and to get older. Um, And, you know, they just can't wait to have more birthdays and to be able to do more things. And, and doing more things is really at the heart of why they want to get older. They want to be able to do all the things that we say, no, you, you can't do that. And so we've learned that we don't say to our kids, no, you can't do that. We tell them, you can't do that yet. And that yet is really the key to our disclaimer because you know, I'm sure you'd all want me to hear that we've discovered the fountain of youth, but we haven't discovered the fountain of youth yet. And so what I'm going to tell you about today uh, is really, as we take a closer look at aging, we'll start by talking about what is aging, what are the challenges that aging poses to individuals and to society at large. We're going to talk about the key solution to those challenges. And to do that, we're going to talk about what causes aging at both the cellular and molecular level, and really the solution to this is going to require a fundamental change to our approach to research that is really going to be required to have the maximum impact on human health. And lastly, I'll tell you about some of the important breakthroughs that we're making in my laboratory to really make that fountain of youth a reality. So let's start by talking about what aging actually is. So if you look up aging in the dictionary, you get the simple definition of it's the process of getting older, right? It's time passes. And unfortunately, I can't tell you how we can prevent time to pass. You might have to attend a, 
a lecture in the physics department or something like that to, to get the answer. But we really want to talk about what biological aging is. And so the World Health Organization defines biological aging as something that results from the impact of the accumulation of a wide variety of molecular and cellular damage over time. This leads to a gradual decrease in physical and mental capacity and a growing risk of disease and ultimately death. Doesn't sound great, does it? Um, and this is really the crux of this major health problem is that by the time we turn 28 years old, aging becomes the leading risk factor for disease and death. And this is all kinds of diseases. So cardiovascular disease, dementia, cancer, outcomes from COVID-19, and the list goes on and on. Hearing loss, cataracts, back and neck pain, arthritis, osteoporosis, pulmonary disease, diabetes, depression, the incidence of all of these diseases increases exponentially with age. And so aging is a critical risk factor for our health, but this isn't only true for us as individuals, but really also true for us as a society. And aging is really a public health issue as well. And that's because we're in the midst of a massive change in how our population is aging. So, you know, we're right smack in the middle of a century of change where the population in the United States is changing from an age distribution that's shaped like a pyramid to one that's shaped like a pillar, where you have equal distribution across all of these different age groups. And within a few years, for the first time in our history, we will have more people over the age of 65 than we do children under the age of 18. And for a long time, aging has been thought to be this challenge in the developing world, but that's not even true anymore. In fact, the growth of the aging population is increasing even faster in developing countries. And so by 2030, one in six people in the world will be over the age of 60, by 2050, the world's population that's over the age of 60 will double to over 2 billion, and the population of people over 80 will triple to over 400 million. And by 2050, nearly two-thirds of the world's population over the age of 60 will live in low- and middle-income countries. And this is going to pose immense healthcare challenges. Now, on top of the healthcare issues, Aging and the changes that are happening within our population is also fundamentally changing the way our economy works. So this, again, is impacting both individuals and society at large. So for people aged 55 and above, they represent currently about 30% of our population, but 56% of our healthcare spending. And when you turn 65 or older, that is when you will use about half of all your healthcare spending throughout your life. Now at a national level, the national healthcare expenditures are approaching 20% of our gross domestic product. And by 2025, which is just around the corner, we're going to experience a shortage of 500,000 home health aides, 100,000 nursing assistants, and 29,000 nurse practitioners. And those labor shortages are actually gonna extend beyond the healthcare sector. So the International Monetary Fund predicts that by 2030, we're going to see a 10% drop in our labor force participation because of the aging population. And if you've been around in the last year and you see the drop in 
or the effects of work shortages, this is something that we're really going to have to address. So lots of big challenges ahead. The good thing is we know the solution that has to be reached. And the solution is that we need to increase what's called health span. So people often talk about living longer and increasing lifespan, but they don't often consider health span. So what is health span? Those are the years of life where we're healthy. So our goal needs to not just be to extend life as far as possible, but to extend the period of life spent in good health and to really compress the period of life that's spent with morbidity. When we can do this, now people are living longer, they're living healthier, and they're more active members of our society. So how do we increase health span? You know, easy, easy to say, but how do we do it? And this is where I think we require a fundamental change to how we approach research. So typically, the way research happens now is in a disease-oriented manner. You have people that work on cancer. You have people that work on Alzheimer's disease. You have people that work on diabetes. But the idea of geroscience is changing that approach. And that is maybe what we actually need to be studying and treating are the fundamental causes of aging. Because if we can treat what's actually causing aging, maybe now we can prevent multiple different types of age-related diseases. And so in order to be able to do that, we must understand the cellular and molecular causes of aging. And that's where we're going to turn to stem cells. So I'm sure many of you have heard of stem cells, but it turns out there are many different kinds of stem cells. And the stem cells that I'm going to be talking about today might not be the ones that you've previously heard of. These are called adult stem cells that are sometimes also referred to as somatic stem cells or tissue stem cells. And these stem cells exist in all of us. They're present in many of our different tissues, and they are the magic cells that are enabling our tissues to regenerate on a daily basis due to normal turnover in response to different injuries and in response to different stressors. Now, we have stem cells, like I said, in many of our tissues. We have stem cells in our brain that help to replace brain cells. We have stem cells in our muscle that replenish our muscles. We have stem cells in our intestine that, re that replace the lining of our, of our intestinal epithelium. We have stem cells in our skin, which you'll hear about from uh, my colleague, Dr. Gerd Cohen, after this. We have stem cells in our bone marrow that make all of our blood and immune cells. And we have stem cells in multiple different tissues. And each of them are specialized to produce the cells within that tissue or organ. Now, what makes these stem cells so special? Well, I say stem cells have two superpowers. Those two superpowers are they have the capacity for self-renewal. That is, they can make more of themselves and only stem cells can make more stem cells. And they have the capacity for what's called multi-lineage differentiation. That is, those stem cells are sort of a blank slate and they can produce any of the cell types required in that given tissue. And so let's look at this from a practical example within a tissue. At the top of this hierarchy is what's called a hematopoietic, which is a blood-forming stem cell. And these hematopoietic stem cells will regenerate all of our blood and immune cells throughout life. 
These cells are exceedingly rare. They represent about 0.007% of all the cells in our bone marrow. That's about 70 cells out of every million. And what these cells do, as I said, is that they self-renew throughout life and they differentiate to give rise to all of the different types of blood cells. This includes things like red blood cells that carry oxygen, platelets that help with clotting, different types of immune cells like our B and T cells to fight infection, and so on. And so while we have these remarkable stem cells that maintain health in our tissues, unfortunately, the function of those stem cells starts to go wrong with age. And it primarily, these stem cells will malfunction in three different ways during aging. The first way a stem cell can malfunction is that it loses its ability to self-renew. When that happens, we lose that pool of stem cells, and now we can no longer replace the mature uh, cell types within our tissues that do all the work to make those tissues and organs function. This is how stem cell dysfunction leads to degenerative disease during aging. Now, the second way that stem cells can go wrong during aging is that they get too much self-renewal activity or a different type of cell can hijack that self-renewal activity that stem cells normally use. When this happens, you produce too many cells, too many stem cells, and this is what leads to cancer. The third problem with stem cells with aging is that multi-lineage differentiation can become skewed. So that stem cell that will normally produce cell type A and cell type B stops making cell type A and starts making a lot more of cell type B. And this leads to tissue dysfunction. So practically, let's look at what that means in the blood system. So those hematopoietic stem cells that I told you about that make all of our blood and immune cells, well, with age, sometimes their self-renewal activity goes away. And this can lead to things like bone marrow failure in older people. Sometimes that self-renewal activity gets hyperactivated and this can lead to the development of leukemia. The differentiation potential of these stem cells also gets skewed during aging. Those stem cells start producing fewer adaptive immune cells called lymphoid cells, things like B and T cells. And this is in part what makes older people more susceptible to infection. They also stop producing red blood cells and platelets, and this can lead to anemia or clotting disorders. And instead, they're making more of what are called myeloid cells. These are inflammatory cells, and this can lead to chronic inflammation that can have widespread effects during aging across multiple different tissues. So now we know stem cell dysfunction happens during aging, and this is contributing to all sorts of different types of disorders. Now, the next question is, well, what's causing stem cells to malfunction during aging? And the answer, I think, is actually quite intuitive and something you all probably know. And that is that stress causes aging. So I think the best example of this is when you look at before and after pictures of our presidents. This is a, a sort of stress on, on steroids, so to speak, and, and you really see these effects visually, um, but we also know how stress makes us feel. But how does a cell experience stress? What does it mean for a stem cell to be stressed? And this is where the work from my lab, I think, is really making key breakthroughs. 
So several years ago, we adapted technology that allowed us to measure how much protein individual cells were making. And most people thought, well, who cares, right? Like all cells are making protein. It must happen the same way in every cell type. Turns out not the case at all. Each cell type in our body makes protein at its own very specialized rate. And stem cells are a very unique outlier in this regard. Stem cells produce protein much more slowly than any type of cell. And we were the first to show this to be the case in the blood. And now people have taken our technology and have looked in other kinds of stem cells. And as far as I know, in every single type of stem cell people have looked at, this is the same. Stem cells produce protein slowly. They don't just produce protein slowly, they have to produce protein slowly. When we turn up that rate of protein production, even just a little bit in stem cells, it has catastrophic results. We really lose that stem cell self-renewal potential. Okay, so why are you talking about protein production? Why, what does this have to do with aging? And so let me tell you where the light bulb moment really came from. But before I do that, let's make sure we all understand exactly what a protein is and what protein production is. So really the central dogma in biology is that we have DNA that you know is broken up into about 20,000 genes. Now what each one of those genes is, is actually an instruction for how our cells can build a specific protein. And it's the protein that actually is the function. It is what is doing something. Consider your phone, right? You know, inside your phone, someone has written a bunch of computer code, right? And that's all stored as zeros and ones. And, you know, that's our DNA. It's the, it's the instruction for how to do something. For the most part, that's not practical. It doesn't, doesn't impact us. What impacts us is that that code is the instruction for how to use an app or, or how an app works. And our proteins are our apps. They are what actually does something within our cells. Okay, so the key moment now comes from studies that were done in various model organisms, where they found that when protein production is slowed down, either genetically or through environmental interventions, that organism will actually live longer. This has been shown to be true in yeast, in flies, in worms, in mice. Less protein synthesis, longer life. And so this really led us to a key hypothesis. And we said, if turning down protein synthesis promotes lifespan and longevity at the organismal level of the organism, then maybe the same is true for long-lived stem cells, that they have low protein synthesis to really enable their long life. And so the next step here is to understand, well, why does having low protein synthesis promote long life? And it goes back to that question of stress. And it's that reducing protein synthesis alleviates stress. So again, what is stress at the molecular level? Well, I told you that each of these proteins that's built has to have function, but you don't just have to assemble the protein piece by piece. It actually has to fold and, and, and enter a very specific shape and conformation in order to work well. Now, 
sometimes that protein does not fold properly or is built incorrectly. And it turns out that protein production is a highly error-prone process. And so what happens if a protein folds in the wrong way? Well, not only is it not going to work properly, it can actually be toxic to the cells. And this is stress. So again, an analogy, if we think about building, if I dump out a Lego set on the table, I can put all the pieces together and build something. But if I don't build it the right way, it's not going to look at all like the front of the box tells me it is. And this is what happens with protein production. When it goes fast, it makes mistakes. When it makes mistakes, proteins misfold. This causes stress. So do stem cells have less of these misfolded or stressful proteins? And so the way that we looked at that is by using a technique called Western blotting, which is shown here. And the way that this works, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is we'll basically take cells, crack them open, and look at all their protein. And in this case, we're looking at all the protein that is tagged with a molecule called ubiquitin. And ubiquitin tags all the misfolded proteins in our cells. It says, I'm labeling you as misfolded as trash. This is essentially a measurement of trash. And when we look at this in stem cells as compared to other kinds of cells, you can see stem cells have less trash. The stem cells are under less stress than these other types of cells. And through a series of experiments, we went on to show that when we increase how fast stem cells make protein, we increase the trash in those stem cells. And then separately, we could show even if we didn't increase that speed, if we just increased the trash, we were impairing stem cell function. Stem cells do not like to accumulate trash that comes from their stress. So most cells in our body are short-lived. They synthesize protein quickly. They have lots of stress. They live fast. They die young. Stem cells, though, are in it for the long haul. They need to make sure that Every protein they produce is as pristine as possible because they don't want to accumulate this trash. So we actually know a lot about protein misfolding and how it can cause disease from neurodegenerative disorders. Because these misfolded proteins, when they accumulate in cells, what will actually start to happen is that they'll clump together. And we know that this is a feature of many different types of neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and so on. And we know this because you can actually see them. When they do pathology on, on the brains of people, you can actually see these clumps of protein that are essentially forming plaque-like structures in the brain. Well, easy to see this in the brain, a large organ, lots of cells, Stem cells, though, remember, 0.007%. How are we going to see these accumulate within stem cells? Well, lucky for us, the stem cells have an alarm system to tell us that this is happening. And this alarm system involves a gene that we study called heat shock factor 1, or HSF1 for short. So the way that this alarm system gene works is that normally it's sequestered in a part of the cell called the cytoplasm. Now, HSF1 binds to other proteins that are called chaperone proteins. Those chaperones help proteins fold properly. 
Now, under conditions of stress where you start to have lots of misfolded proteins, well, those chaperones say, we've got work to do. They leave HSF1 alone and they bind up all those misfolded proteins. And this allows HSF1 to move through the cell to enter what's called the nucleus where we have all of our genetic material and to activate a program to help restore normal function and fitness in those cells. So we know if there's a problem in these cells by looking at where this HSF1 protein is. Is it in the cytoplasm or is it in the nucleus? And so when we look at stem cells in young adults, we don't really see much HSF1 present in the nucleus, which is stained in this blue region here. But by middle age, you can start to see all this HSF1 present within these stem cells. And HSF1 is shown in these green fluorescent dots here. Aging stem cells are sounding the stress alarm. And what is HSF1 doing in those stem cells? Well, we've studied that and we found that HSF1 is helping to keep our stem cells fit as we age. Unfortunately, they're doing their best, but it's not always good enough. And now using some newer technology, we actually see that aging stem cells, just like those aging brain cells, are really accumulating aggregated proteins. These data are sort of hot off the press in our lab. We, we just generated them where we're now seeing about a 20 to 30% increase in the amount of aggregated protein within old stem cells. Now, it's great that nature has figured out a way to help stem cells reduce stress. Doesn't seem to be good enough as we really progress into the later stages of life. But there's another downside, and that's that this adaptive response is a little bit of a double-edged sword. So when HSF1 gets turned on, it's not only helping stem cells cope with stress, it can also help cancer cells cope with stress. And so when we look in acute myeloid leukemia, we also see HSF1 turned on. And turns out that HSF1 is really important for helping these cancer cells grow. So what I'm showing you here are human leukemia cells injected into mice. This signal that you're seeing here represents the burden of leukemia cells that's there. Now we've taken those exact same leukemia cells and we've deleted the HSF1 gene. We've taken it out of the system. And you can see the cancer grows much more slowly in that case. And these mice survive much more than the normal leukemia cells. And so to show you exactly this, how this double-edged sword works again, is that normally young stem cells, they're in good shape. They work normally. As they age, they start to accumulate these misfolded and aggregated proteins. This can impair stem cell self-renewal and lead to tissue dysfunction. But we can turn on this alarm gene that's responding to this stress. And that's helping to eliminate some of those misfolded proteins and to maintain normal stem cell function. But when HSF1 turns on, well, it can cause stem cells to go a little haywire, and that can lead to the development of cancer. So what's the answer here? 
you know, it feels like we're in a catch 22. We can either keep our stem cells fit and risk cancer, or we can, you know, avoid the risk of cancer at the expense of having proper tissue regeneration and function. And so we think that the key is to limit the biogenesis of these misfolded proteins to keep our stem cells fit so that they never even have to activate these pathways that can later prevent cancer. So if we look at these old stem cells, if we can prevent them from getting those misfolded proteins, well, they'll never activate HSF1, they'll never get cancer, and the tissue function will be normal. Okay, sounds easy, right? How do we do it? So we're taking lots of approaches to do it, looking at multiple different pathways, but I'm gonna just briefly tell you about the one that I'm most excited about. Again, it sounds easy. Our strategy is to make the process of protein synthesis less error prone. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, you know, this is a process that is conserved all through, all through life. This is, you know, protein synthesis is one of the most required processes. How are we going to just change it? Well, here's the good news. We've already done it. We've introduced the tiniest mutation in a single base pair of DNA that can alter how the machinery that builds proteins has errors. And we can improve the quality of proteins that are produced with this single mutation. And this single mutation is permissible for, for life in mice. We have made mice that contain just this tiny mutation. They produce less errors when they make protein. And in our very early studies, we see that their stem cells are aging at a slower rate. We are super excited to continue to pursue these studies and are really empowered to see how minimizing this stress from protein errors and protein misfolding can not only affect stem cell function, but can affect multiple tissues and overall health span and lifespan. On top of that, we've engineered a system where we can actually screen drugs now to do the exact same thing. And we're really excited to launch that. So let me now summarize by telling you how we plan to keep stem cells fit to extend human health span. So today we talked about what aging was and how it's a primary risk factor for disease and death. We talked about how aging poses immense health and economic challenges for individuals and society at large. Our goal is to extend health span by treating the underlying causes of aging with the hope of preventing multiple types of age-related diseases. We're targeting stem cells because stem cell function declines during aging, contributing to degenerative disorders, tissue dysfunction, and cancer. And we believe that by preventing the accumulation of misfolded proteins and stress will be the key to keeping our stem cells fit and preventing these diseases. Let me just take this opportunity to thank all the people that contributed to the work. I feel so fortunate to work with just an incredible group of scientists in my lab uh, that range from undergraduate students and even this summer high school students through graduate students, postdocs, uh, clinical fellows. We really have an amazing team that embraces our collaborative nature, our kindness and respect, and our desire to make big impact on human health. And let me also thank 
my many collaborators, both here in the local uh, at UCSD and in San Diego and across the country and the world. And of course, none of this work is possible without funding. And, and that's really what drives our ability to do more and more of this work. And, you know, I've really given you a little bit of a surface level of the science we do, but my door is open. If you're interested and you want to learn more, please, please come get in touch with me. Come happy to meet, happy to teach you, happy to talk to you, happy to answer questions, happy to let you tour the lab. Um, that's what we're here for. So thank you to everyone for your attention and uh, look forward to answering questions later on in, in today's program. Thank you so much, Rob. Uh, that was a spectacular talk as always. So you heard things from the point of view of a stem cell. What is the stem cell going through? And, you know, Rob is a pioneer in the field, even though his paper was in 2014. It's had an immense uh, ripple effects on the entire stem cell field, not just for blood stem cells, for uh, stem cells in other tissues. Uh, so in terms of Shiri Gur-Cohen, so just like Rob, it's sort of the yin and yang here. So Rob has worked a lot on the cell autonomy effects or the effects that are happening within the stem cells. So you see the misfolded protein response. Uh, what Shiri Gur-Cohen has really become famous for since her paper in 2019 in Science together with Elaine Fuchs is what's happening in the bone marrow microenvironment. And so not that Rob didn't work on that, it's just they've decided to work on things from slightly different angles that are completely complementary. Uh, anyway, so Shiri Gur-Cohen did um, her undergrad training and her master's at the Technion University in Israel and then her PhD at the Weizmann Institute. Institute, which is the top institute in Israel, although I'm sure the people at the Technion would argue with that, uh, but a very creative, innovative, and entrepreneurial uh, scientists in both those environments, and worked with a person that I really have studied all his work for years and years as a leukemia stem cell biologist, that was Svi Lapidot. So Svi actually discovered the leukemia stem cell and acute myeloid leukemia back in 1994, and then again in 97 uh, with John Dick. And so, you know, this is really important work. But at that time, Shuri started to look at What's going on in the bone marrow microenvironment or what we call the niche that is corrupting these cells and making them work differently or move to other places in the body as Rob showed so nicely in his in vivo imaging that leukemia cells like to go to other places. So Shuri worked on clotting factors and other aspects of uh, the coagulation system in blood to see how did that intersect with how cells were able to move outside of the bone marrow niche and then moved on to Elaine Fuchs lab at the Rockefeller Institute, Elaine Fuchs discovered the skin stem cell, the hair follicle stem cell, a self-renewal pathway called Wnt beta catenin signaling and how that intersected with the self-renewal process that Rob was talking about. Uh, but then really started to say, what about these other vessels that nobody studies? The lymphatics. This is when I work out uh, very reluctantly with my personal trainer, uh, just like Mary Donahoe, she and I share this person. <laughs> and she goes, the lymphatics, the lymphatics, you've got to circulate the lymphatics. They don't like to circulate that much or they don't like to do their job that much. They have to be sort of coked. And this is Shuri's uh, claim to fame already. So just like Rob Signer's work had this ripple effect on the field and has continued to do so, uh, this is what Shuri has done. The lymphatic vessels, that microenvironment is really important for maintaining our tissues as we get older. And we never think about it. I don't, but Shuri does. So Shuri's going to tell us all about this. We were thrilled to have recruited her here to the Division of Regenerative Medicine in UC San Diego. And just like Rob, who's also a pioneer in stem cell research and longevity, Shuri is... Um, 
equally sought after in terms of being a collaborator. And uh, just to pick your brain. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, so Sherry's here. She's going to look at a closer look at stem cell aging and uh, how fantastic our stem cells are when we find them. Thank you so much, Sherry, for being here. Thank you, Kat, so much for this very kind introduction. Um, just to echo what Rob was just saying, you are really a true inspiration for all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you also for the whole STEM team here at the Sanford Consortium for putting this event together. It's really fantastic to be here. Um, so stem cells hold the power for generation, um, but stem cells can age. What if I can tell you that we can trick the stem cells, that we can tell them that they're actually not old, that they're young, that they can do exactly the same thing that they used to do when they are young, which is to regenerate our tissues. Um, so yeah, I'm Shiri. I'm the new assistant professor here in the Division of Regenerative Medicine. And what I'm going to show you today is that it's not only possible to trick the stem cells, but that it may represent the very near future where we can grow old with time, but stay healthy and hopefully happy and satisfied. So let me start by telling you that our body has a remarkable regenerative capacity. Although in humans, almost exclusively, if you lose a limb, you lose it forever, it doesn't mean that you stop growing. In fact, we are losing in a single day billions of cells, and this is completely normal. The way that I like to think about it is that we all know how we woke up this morning, but we must have changed several times. At the cellular level, you are not the same person that you woke up this morning. In fact, as we speak, our body is in a constant state of regeneration. Some organs replace themselves very fast, like the intestine or the skin. In fact, your intestine is completely new every few days. Um, uh, your skin, you're getting a whole new skin once, once a month or so. Um, some organs replace themselves very slow, like the muscles, or not even being replaced at all in the adults, like the heart. But key players in this regenerative process, as you've heard, are the stem cells that have the capacity to regenerate our tissues, to make sure that there is a constant turnover, but also to regenerate the tissue when we need them to act. So when we have wounds, those stem cells need to act very, very fast. When we are losing blood, those stem cells need to act immediately to replenish the damaged tissue. Um, so... I grew up with my grandma, and back then I didn't need to have any stem cell textbook to tell me that tissue regeneration is an arrow with the one negative direction. Um, we're constantly exposed to damage to the sun, UV damage. Uh, we are exposed to pathogens. We're exposed to wounds. And all of that really requires our stem cells to work very, very hard to repair it. But with time, that takes longer and longer and longer. So when we're aging, that doesn't really happen very efficiently. But what if I tell you that this is not inevitable? What if I tell you that we can trick the stem cells or tell the stem cells or design the stem cells in a way that they can do exactly the same thing that they used to do when they were young, just as long as possible? In my laboratory, we're asking exactly these questions. Um, what is the central cause 
that maintain stem cells youth potential, but also how we can leverage that knowledge to develop new stem cell based technologies so we can tell those stem cells to do it exactly the same thing that they used to do when they are young. Um, so how do you know that you're aging? Um, there are two main ways to know that. One is if you were born in a different century, then by definition, you're aging. Accept it. The second way that you know that you're aging is that we're using our eyes and we're watching. And if you will look around you, you will see people. And normally, the first thing that you will see is their appearance. And um, usually, someone's appearance, the skin and their hair, um, is the first clue that immediately reflects on someone's age. Um, there is a common belief that aging is associated with a decline of the skin appearance. Appearance, We are not having as firm skin as we used to have. Uh, we are losing the pigmentation in our hair and in our skin. Um, our wounds are not healing as fast, right? So we sometimes see red spots on the body or sometimes when older people, you see those patches on their skin because their skin is simply not healing as it used to do. One interesting fact about your skin is that it will age much faster than any organ in your body. And the reason for it is because we are exposed to the external, very, very harmful environment, DNA damage that happened through the sun, um, pathogens and, and wounds, as I've been told you. This is our external surface that's supposed to protect us, but it is the surface that um, exposed to the most harmful conditions. But how fast do we age? So apparently, when we are babies, our skin completely renews itself once in every two weeks or so. I remember being terrified when I saw a scratch on my baby boy's skin, but it was completely gone within a few days. There was nothing left. Um, when we are teenagers, and then we are actually being terrified by each and every scratch on our body, um, our skin regenerates itself once a month or so. Uh, closer to my age, or so I want to think about it at least, is that my skin can regenerate itself once in every two months or so. And as we grow older and older, that takes more and more time. We see aging all the time. If you're lucky, if all of us are lucky, we will age. Um, and we think it's completely normal. We sometimes even try to do it gracefully. We're trying to age gracefully. But to me as a stem cell biologist, it really means that there is a problem underneath the surface. It means that your stem cells are no longer able to do what they were designed to do, which is to regenerate your tissues on demand exactly at the time when they need to work. Um, and when is that actually a problem? It's a problem when you have wounds and they simply don't heal themselves anymore. And that is chronic wounds. And just to give you a little bit of numbers, but the people in the United States that suffer from chronic wounds exceed the number of people that suffer from breast cancer, lung cancer, and colon cancer combined. It's a lot of people. It's about 3% of the age population in the world will suffer from um, chronic wounds. And um, with the increase of age population in the, on Earth, the prevalence of chronic wounds rose significantly in the past five years. And this is only expected to go up and up and up because we are making people live longer 
but not necessarily healthier. So we need to find a better solution. We need to find a better solution for these aged stem cells. They need to repair our wounds and they need to do it when we need them to, to do that job. So we don't have these magical powers. We can simply do magic and repair wounds, but we have magical stem cells. And in my view, they are not less magical from this video and what happened there. Those stem cells can kick in when they need to do, and they will do everything in their power to regenerate your tissues. So where do we find those fantastic stem cells? Those magical stem cells that reside in your tissues, in most of your tissues, they're deep there, down there in the, in the tissue, and they normally have the ability to make more of themselves, as Rob was saying. They can self-renew themselves but they can also create the tissue in which they reside. So it means to differentiate. And in the context of the skin, this is the skin that you touch on your body. This is the hair that you see on your, on your head. Um, these are the differentiated cells that create our tissues. Um, but their fate decisions needs to be balanced because too little of stem cell activity will create insufficient tissue growth, like what happened in aging, um, but too much of it will create cancer. And so what we really want to understand in stem cell biology, even though um, I'm working more on the environment and Rob mentioned on the internal thing, we both want to understand what influence balanced stem cell fetish decision. How can we control that stem cells will create the right cell type at the right place, but also at the right time when tissue regeneration needs to happen? I am stem cell biologist in training, but I'm microscopist in my soul. And in my laboratory, we are watching. We are watching regeneration when it happens, when we are watching when stem cells proliferate, when they differentiate, when they migrate, when they are talking with their environment. Because for us, when we capture that moment when stem cells makes their tissue, then we can harness that knowledge to develop new technologies for tissue regeneration while avoiding the risk for malignant transformation. So to watch, we are using the microscope and the skin is very unique because it's a home for multiple types of stem cells. It's a home for the epidermal stem cells that will create our skin. It's a home for the melanocyte stem cells that will create our color, the color of our skin, the color of our hair. It's also um, the home for a beautiful other organ that called the hair follicle. There we have hair follicle stem cells. And they're also very unique because at the base of each of your hair follicles, we have stem cells here in red. Those stem cells will create a progeny that will fuel the growth of the hair. But why do I think that they're very magical? Because when you have wounds, those stem cells have the capacity to change their fate. They were designed or evolve during development to create hair. But when you have wounds, those stem cells will cross the bridge, cross lineage boundaries, and will create skin. So stem cells will do everything in their power. And this is why I was saying I truly believe that they are magical because they can change their fate in order to regenerate our tissues. So when we think about these stem cells, they are at the base of our hair follicles and they normally act in cycles. Um, those stem cells normally will be in their resting phase and then at one point they will become activated, um, create progeny, and this progeny will fuel the growth of the hair.
Those progeny eventually will die, leaving only the stem cells to survive to the next cycle. And this is exactly what you see all the time. Our hair grow and shed, grow and shed. Apparently, when you're young, your stem cells spend half of their time when they're growing and half of the time when they're resting. As we age, the time that they spend in the growth phase dramatically decline. So why is that happening? Why are they becoming dry? Why they're not doing what they were supposed to be doing? Because in my view, even the driest of seeds, if you will put it in the right environment, if you will put it the right soil with the right conditions with sun and, and humidity, it will grow. So what the stem cells need when they're aging that can really make them grow and flourish? Um, those environment, what we call the niches, can also age. So what happened to this environment when the stems, where stem cells reside in? Uh, one interesting fact about your hair is that hair growth is sensitive to systemic changes. We talked about aging, how it is important for um, stem cells to act when they are during aging, but we also know the hormonal cues. When we are pregnant, our hair is beautiful. The soon that we give birth, it's all going away. Um, stress, we mentioned stress. Stress is also one of the things that we know that affect our hair growth. So systemic changes that run through our body really affect how our hair grow. And this is just a symbol of how tissue regeneration happens. And that really gives me a hint. What might run through our body that potentiate this system to give those cues for the stem cells? To understand that, we need to go back to the embryonic state because two systems were born, two very, very different systems were born, but they became bond for life, the skin and the vascular system. When one senses the heat, the other one will blush when one senses the breach of its walls, the other one will bring in lots of immune cells and clear the waste in order to restore tissue integrity. And so we have no system that run through our body and potentiate it maybe to be important for stem cells as well. Normally, when I talk with people about the vascular system, and apparently I do have the tendency to do that, um, people normally think about the blood vessels. And it's true, we do have blood vessels in our, um, in our body. These blood circulatory system are important to transfer blood cells um, and, and immune cells into our tissues. But we have one more circulatory system, and this is the lymphatic vascular system that Kat mentioned. Um, so this lymphatic vascular system is important to drain back all the fluids and macromolecules from our tissues back into the circulatory system and to the lymph node that exists in our body. So now I can really ask the question, can the vascular system coordinate the regenerative process and maintain the youth potential of those stem cells that we were talking about? But by asking that question, I understood that I need a new perspective. Because thinking about the vascular system, it has a three-dimensional view. And if you look at this video, for example, you may be wrong that the balls are actually going on one dimension. You're completely missing the fact that they're going up and down. And it's very similar because biology was very much restricted to look at biological phenomena with very thin sections of tissues. 
So I need a different perspective, but I have a problem because our skin is not transparent. I can't simply take it to the microscope and say, okay, how the vascular system look like? It's almost as if you are taking your camera and, and taking pictures under the water. You see everything very blurry. You can't appreciate the structure and the colors. So what we did, we cleared the opaqueness of the skin, making it completely transparent. So now I can take my camera in the microscope. Um, I, when I took all the water droplet outside of the tissue and I can visualize the beautiful architecture of the vascular system around the stem cells without compromising tissue integrity. So this is exactly what we were doing. And for the first time, we were able to see the beautiful structure of the blood vessels and the lymphatic system in the skin. And we could use to see it also in three dimension. So what we were able to see for the first time, in green, you can see the stem cells. And in red, you can see the lymphatic capillaries. And what we were able to see is that the stem cells are tightly associated with the lymphatic capillaries. We could model that interaction. And you can really appreciate how close they are together. They're really nesting on top of each other. The stem cells love to be together with their lymphatic vascular system uh, when they're at the resting phase. So now we're going to take a virtual tour as if we have a special glasses that allows us to dive into our skin. What you see in green are the stem cells, in red are the blood vessels, and in white you can see our um, lymphatic vascular system. So now we're going to take this virtual tour into our skin, and what we found is that the lymphatic capillaries create protrusions that emerge from them and hold the stem cells tight when the stem cells are young and in the resting state. So you can see it also here. Essentially, what we found is that the communication between stem cells and lymphatics is controlled by the stem cells themselves. So the stem cells kind of like have the brain to control how their environment will look like. They will secrete factors to control the association with lymphatics when they're at the resting phase. And as soon as they will become um, activated, they will switch to a different program to tell the lymphatics to stay away for a little bit, allowing tissue regeneration to happen. And this is what happened throughout the cycle. So it's important for the stem cells to control how lymphatic behavior will look like. So the environment is important to maintain balanced stem cell phase decision. Um, but the question remains, why hair loss happens when we age? Are we losing the stem cells? Are they just gone and not growing hair anymore? Or are we losing the soil, the, the, the environment, the niche that support the stem cells themselves? What are we losing uh, when stem cells age? And this is a very complex question to ask because our tissues are composed of so many, many stem cells, so many cell types, so many um, cues and signals. Imagine like we have a pile of Lego that compose of so many colors and shapes and types. So how do I find now my stem cells? And I ask, what is the difference between young stem cells and old stem cells? So we live in a very exciting times when science can really push the limits and we can really sort those cells. We can look at them, we can identify the stem cells and look at their genome and what they express and to ask what are the differences that a young stem cells do and an old stem cells do. 
And this is exactly what we were doing. But the only thing that I want you to take from this Lego pile is that the aged stem cells and the young stem cells are very, very similar. They maybe have some different in, in numbers, um, but they're still there. And most importantly, they express exactly the same genes that we would expect them to, to, to express when they're young. So all the identity genes that are important for them to know that they are stem cells are still there and they're almost identical. Clearly, they are not doing their job right. So they're not growing hair. You can look at this young mice, how they're growing beautiful hair and beautiful fur. Um, but the aged mice fail to do that. They are bold. Their hair simply don't grow as well as the young mice. So they have the stem cells. They express exactly the same identity genes as the young one, but they fail to do their job. So why hair loss happens as we age? Again, turning into the microscope because this is what I do best and we looked through um, clearing how the stem cells look like. What we found is that the young stem cells um, are stored in kind of very beautiful compartments called the bulge. They're very much constrained to this structure. They have two of them, one from the old cycle, one from the new cycle, and they're very much constrained in their structure. On the other hand, when we looked at the old um, hair follicle stem cells, so again, just to tell you, they are there, they're not gone, even though we're turning bold or the hair is not growing as well, the stem cells are there, but their structure is completely collapsed. So they're no longer maintaining this beautiful structure. Um, maybe the environment that maintained that structure is also disrupted. So we looked at the lymphatic vessels. And I think it's very clear that all of you can really appreciate that the healthy um, young mice had beautiful lymphatics, very well um, constrained endothelium. They function the way that they're supposed to function, to drain back fluids and macromolecules. Um, but the aged mice had completely different structure. Their lymphatics were no longer beautifully um, oriented in the skin. They were dilated. Um, their function was completely disrupted and, and deteriorates with time. But what's really important for us to look at is what is the association between those lymphatics and the aged stem cells? So what you can see here in yellow are the stem cells. The red are the blood vessels. The blue are the lymphatic capillaries. And we could, again, look at this in three-dimensional view. What we found is that the stem cells, again, they are there. They're not gone. They're highly associated with blood vessels. They're getting nutrients, but they're no longer associated with the lymphatic capillaries. The beautiful structure that I showed you that is important for balanced stem cell phase decision too much or too little is no longer there. One important thing that I want you to know about tissue regeneration is that tissue regeneration is a very, very complex event. And great coordination between virus cell type requires to establish tissue integrity. We need so many cell types, signaling molecules, the matrix, all of that need to work together in a very, very orchestrated way. Like in orchestra, um, in tissue regeneration, we know the musicians, we know the instruments, we know the notes, we know the music, but we don't know who is the conductor. 
Who is the conductor that really makes sure that all the stem cells will work together with their environment in a synchronized way to make sure that the music that we hear, tissue regeneration, will happen the way that we expect it to happen? In other words, how do stem cells regenerate the right cell type at the right place and at the right time? Because this is what happened when we are young, but it declines when we are aging. And the... Skin is, again, very beautiful model to ask that question because the stem cells in the uh, hair follicles are all very synchronized. Either they are in the resting phase and they are all in the resting phase or that they're all growing together at the same time. So you can appreciate that all the follicles are growing at the same time. Um, so it's a beautiful model to ask who is the conductor in this process. What we found is that when lymphatics are no longer functional, when they're no longer able to make the association with their stem cells, stem cells no longer synchronized. You can see some small stem cells here in green and some very big follicle together with them. And when that happened, tissue regeneration doesn't happen anymore because synchronized behavior that stem cells will work with their environment in a synchronized way is important for repair and for the uh, when we have wounds so it will restore itself those big follicles some stem even develop hyperplegia so balanced stem cell phase decision didn't happen anymore what happened to these mice that had dysfunctional lymphatics what you're looking right now are basically two identical twins. They were born to the same mom at the same time and at the same place. One of these mice had genetic mutation that caused its lymphatics not to function as good, um, not to form those connections that I showed you with the stem cells. What we found is that these mice, even though they were young, they started to lose hair prematurely. They basically express signals or their phenotype was kind of premature aging. So we can push aging fast forward, but can we reverse it? This is what we all want to know, right? So we wanted to know that as well. And so we did an experiment. Um, and together with my colleague, Yajinge, what we did is to isolate stem cells from the young mice and with from the old mice. And we also isolate the environment where the stem cells reside in. And we isolated from the young and the adult, and we mixed and matched to see what's happened. So we put the young stem cells in an old environment, and we took the old stem cells and we put them in a young environment. What we found is that the young stem cells, when you put them in an old environment, do not regenerate anymore. This is not what I'm supposed to do. This is not the environment that I need to grow. On the other hand, the old stem cells, when we put them in young environment, were tricked. They were tricked to think that they're actually young and they were able to generate hair when normally they did not regenerate hair. They were tricked to think that they're in a young place and they need to regenerate the tissue right now. I started to tell you that we have so many tissues in our body and I showed you now one environment that controls stem cell phase decisions um, in the skin. Um, but different tissues work very differently. Some tissues regenerate very slow, like the hair follicles in cycles, and some organs very fast, like the intestine. Every few days, the stem cells there are constantly active. So 
Coming back to the question, can we have one central cause for stem cells aging? Um, can it be that one niche, one environment control two different organs that have completely different usage in a similar way? Or in a different words, can the lymphatic system renew the stem cells in the skin and in the intestine in a similar way? The short answer is yes. What we found is that even though we have no system that works very, very fast, the intestinal stem cells here in green are tightly associated with the lymphatic capillaries. And what we found is that this association also in the intestine is important to maintain this balanced stem cell phase decision and their usage and how much we're using from these stem cells is controlled by the lymphatic microenvironment. So I showed you now a completely new system for stem cell biology right now in regenerating the hair, in regenerating the uh, intestine, and, and other words have shown that although not very stem cell centric, but lymphatics are important for brain function and also for heart regeneration and repair. So the question that we are now interested to ask is if it's possible to slow aging and can we reverse it? Because now we have a system in hand that runs through our body and can really control all of the, all of the stem cells and all of our tissues in a similar way, maybe. And so these are exactly the question that we're asking in the lab. And can we learn something from how the stem cells interact with their lymphatic microenvironment to make that arrow looks completely different? And just to show you that we are not completely far away from this day, because another work from a very good colleague of mine just showed that by preventing age-associated vascular loss in our body, can extend the mammalian lifespan and not only extend the life of these animals that had better vascular system, they were much healthier. So maybe we can actually just improve the vascular system that runs through our body, live longer and live healthier life. And that will come also with happiness, hopefully. And we're also asking how we can leverage that knowledge. And we're working to develop new technologies to really restore and to trick those aged stem cells to think that they are young again. So when stem cells lose its function, we age or we develop diseases. And so the ability of stem cells to maintain and repair organs diminish with age, but paradoxically at the same time, the risk of cancer increases. And that all comes together to the uh, vascular theory of aging, because maybe the fountain of youth is actually within us. It runs through our body. And as we grow old, these pipes are just drying out. Maybe we can restore them or maybe just prevent them from drying out and restore um, um, our ability to regenerate our tissues um, for as long as possible. We may not live forever, but I'm one of those that believes that science can really push the boundaries and that we are not that far away from the day that we can actually achieve that. Um, and so in my laboratory, we really study how the epithelial stem cells communicate with their environment, with their supporting um, niches to understand dynamic tissue remodeling and how we can leverage that knowledge and develop new technologies. 
Uh, with that, I would just like to thank my mentors, my colleagues, uh, my funding resources. And as Rob just said, I will be more than happy just to talk more on not only how to improve the, the texture of your skin, but really to regenerate our tissues. Um, so thank you so much for being here today and virtually and, and in person. Thank you so much. My first question is for Rob, and that has more to do with tRNA. So when we translate our mRNAs into protein, we rely on these molecules called tRNA. And my question is, I felt a little wobbly up here, um, does the wobble effect change as we get older? Is there any impact on aging and that fidelity of um, translation? Thanks, Kat, for a, a great and poignant question, because tRNA is something that we are really just starting to work on uh, in our lab. And so um, for those that are unfamiliar, tRNAs are really what help to adapt um, the what are called amino acids, which is the building blocks of protein, and, and to put them together. And, and the truth of the matter is we know almost nothing about how tRNAs are regulated in a cell-type specific manner. So we don't know how they work in stem cells. Frankly, we don't know how they change with age. Um, and so, unfortunately, I can't answer your question, but we're working on it is what I'll have to say. And, and you know, some really exciting work that's coming out of a collaboration between us and, and another group here on campus is really showing that there are very important differences in tRNAs that we know are at least changing in age in the period of time during development that stem cells become sensitive to changes in these tRNA molecules differently as they develop in the embryo as they do in adult life. And so uh, I think there's a lot to be discovered there and we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, the other question I had was about circadian rhythm. So when you show the poor presidents, <laughs> it was really quite striking, you know, how much they aged in such a short period of time. So is there a circadian rhythm effect on the misfolded protein response or how HSF1 translocates to the nucleus? Have you looked at that? So again, another really interesting question and, and something that we haven't looked at. We do know that stem cell behavior is affected by circadian rhythms and, and that different types of cells can be produced more at night or during the day. Uh, and so you know, we do most of our studies uh, in mice and they are on a very strict light and dark cycle. And it's known that if you perturb that light and dark cycle, you can have, you know, vastly different types of effects. So how it's affecting those stress responses, uh, to my knowledge, is not something that's been looked at in stem cells at all. So uh, another really interesting question. Now, Cat's putting us to work, you know. Yeah, so. I know. I'm always trying to make them work harder. Lash, lash. Uh, you know, obviously brilliant work. Thanks, Rob. I had a couple of the same question for Shuri about circadian rhythm and angiopoietin like seven versus four balance. So you showed angiopoietin like seven is able to drain the lymphatics, whereas in the active stem cell, you want the angiopoietin like four to be more expressed. Have you found a circadian rhythm difference in that angiopoietin seven versus four balance? Again, question on spot. Amazing. Um, yeah, we do know that circadian rhythm affects stem cells and how they are. So the environment must change in order to allow these types of um, um, dynamics in the tissue. Um, we don't know how angiopoietin-like 7 secretion by the stem cells or angiopoietin-like 4 secretion is changing by the circadian rhythm. I think it's a very interesting question to ask. Um, but I think also important in that context is how do the, how is that happen? How do they sense that within the context of the skin? If it's something that through the eyes and the nerve system or it's something 
something else. It's, I think, yeah, very interesting question, but we don't know the answer to so the other thing I was thinking, I'm sure other people were wondering as well. So you've got Andrew Putin like seven and four in the specific niche you were looking at. But what about in the gut? You just published this very nice paper in Cell Stem Cell and it looked like LGR5 positive cells could probably move a little bit more. And how much of that is dictated by the the environment of with the lymphatics as opposed to almost like chemokine signals that they're responding to? Do you know about that? That's a very, very good question. So each tissue have different demands or different regenerative potential, right? So the skin or the hair follicles are working in cycles and the intestine is working all the time. Um, what we found is that even though we don't see necessarily the same signals that are coming from the stem cells, there are other signals that can do exactly the same thing. So in the intestine, we don't see this association and disassociation because they're constantly active, but we do see the same association. And when this is disrupted, then balance cell, stem cell phase decision doesn't happen anymore. Um, it's an interesting question to ask, even if they're not secreted, let's say in a natural way, can we leverage the knowledge that we know from the skin and actually um, manipulate other system like the muscle, for example, to regenerate in a different way than it is regenerating right now? And what happened with organs that normally don't regenerate, like the heart? Can we manipulate those signals that we've learned that we evolved to maintain them in one organ but not in the other and to kind of um, trick the heart stem cells now to regenerate because now we know better how what they need or what the environment need to look like to regenerate. You know, when Rob and uh, Sherry were both talking, I was thinking about the NASA twin study. If you remember when Scott Kelly went into space for almost a year, his brother Mark uh, didn't go up for as long and Scott came back two inches taller. So you think, this is great. You go up into space, you come back two inches taller, but he had problems with the two systems that Rob and Sherry study. Uh, Rob with the blood stem cells, uh, it looked like his stem cells weren't doing that well because he had inversions, translocations. And then his main complaint, other than tiredness, uh, was that his skin was very sensitive. And when you were both speaking, I was thinking, eeks, uh, we should have a stem cells in space innovation uh, closer look at, but have you both come back and be able to answer their questions? Because we'll have astronauts saying, Rob, what happened to my blood stem cells? And Sherry, what happened to my skin stem cells? And, you know, obviously your technologies go across um, all the different types of stem cells. But what would you say to an astronaut not to put you on the spot, Rob, uh, but in terms of how do they prevent their stem cells from aging in terms of a proteostasis um, inhibitor? Would you have something for them? Can you envision something to give them to say, okay, you're not going to age as fast now, at least from a blood stem cell standpoint? I got an, a really interesting question and, and one that we've we've been thinking about a little bit, um, really in the context of, of one of the major you know, risk factors or environmental factors going into space is radiation. Um, and radiation is known to damage DNA. Um, and so we think, well, does protein misfolding and this stress of protein, is that the readout of what's happening when DNA gets damaged, right? So if you have an error in your DNA, you're now going to produce a protein incorrectly. And is that protein going to be produced um, in a way that it's going to misfold and aggregate and cause these stress on cells. So that's one piece of this. And we think that, well, can, uh, can changes in protein stress actually reflect changes to our DNA? But there's a whole other question, right? Radiation, 
probably also damages proteins. And so, well, the radiation itself also caused that damage. And so um, I, I would hypothesize that astronauts would be exposed to a lot of protein stress and protein damage in those conditions. And um, it would be really interesting to measure those types of things to understand if they're activating those types of stress responses and if there's anything that we can do to really boost their ability to mount an effective stress response or clear that damage uh, that's arising in space. Definitely bring you back for that one too. Uh, so for Shuri, uh, similar question, different tissue, skin. Uh, they're very sensitive. If you saw poor Scott Kelly, he couldn't even stand to have clothes on. He was so uncomfortable. Is that a problem with angioputin 7? Is it the stem cells are coming away from the lymphatics? What's going on there? So it's very interesting because I think now missions in space are not just a few days, they're years. Um, and the recent, uh, I was just reading an article about this. I think it was in the New York Times just um, saying that one of the main complaints, as you said, is the skin, but that their legs are very, very swollen. And it's basically their wounds don't heal anymore. So if you think about it, accelerated aging really, really happens up there. So you talked about irradiation. The other aspect is gravity. And in order for the lymphatic system to work well, um, under lack of gravity, then they cannot drain as well. Um, and they're basically deteriorating with time. Um, so we don't, we do know that their lymphatics, um, are becoming dysfunctional when they're going back to earth. They're not used to do what they used to, what they can do when they were in space. Um, so it's definitely going to affect their stem cells and it's a, a great question to ask what happened to angiopoietin like seven and and four there are a few studies actually that sequence hair follicle from people in space and we have some information about that um but yeah i mean this is something that we would like to do at one point too great so you're going to come back as well all right so we have uh, somebody with a question here did you want to introduce yourself at the microphone Yes, uh, I'm Elsa Molina. I'm running the Geminomics and Microscopy core here. So I have a question for Sherry. So very, uh, very exciting talk. Thank you very much. Uh, I have two questions, actually. Uh, my first question is about your 10x genomics data. I think this is 10x genomics. Um, and I would like to know if it's uh, human samples or another species, and also what type exactly of cells have you run? And um, my other question is because you showed us this is actually the environment around the stem cells that is actually important have you considered uh, doing spatial transcriptomics thank you elza this is great great questions uh so first yeah we used um we used multiple um, technologies to sequence the cells when they're young, when they're old, uh, when they're with lymphatics and when they're without lymphatics. We're usually using either um, deep sequencing or 10x um, sequencing. Um, the one that I showed you right now was 10x and the cell type were the stem cells that we isolated and their environment as well. So we took the whole tissue, um, but we spiked the stem cells there in order to have have a better representation of the stem cells because as Rob also mentioned, they're quite rare. Um, for spatial, yeah, in the recent paper that we were looking at lymphatics in the intestine, that was very interesting because we know that the crypt stem cells touching the lymphatics at the base but in the small intestine, we also have lactales and these lactales are important to absorb fat 
um, that we're eating and going through our digestive system. So can it be that the, the area that the stem cells are touching is different from areas that are actually designed to absorb fat? So we want to know different regions. To isolate them just simply by flow cytometry would not give me the answer because they express exactly the same markers. Um, and so what we did was spatial transcriptomics. And what we found is that there is a signal that is concentrated only in the area that stem cells reside in and not in the other area or different areas within the vessels that absorb fat and nutrients, for example. So even within this beautiful system that run through our body, different regions that either touch the stem cells or not touch the stem cells can function completely different. So thank you for this question. Okay, so um, what you heard were really um, very important talks here. I think you'll see how this sets the stage for how we reverse this aging process, keeping everything crossed. And we look forward to the next Closer Look at Seminar Series. Thank you. Bye.